The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. I'm going to be reading in Exodus, beginning with verse 13, Exodus 18. It came about the next day that Moses sat to what? To judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from morning until the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? And all the people stand about you from morning until evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you're doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure And all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times, the difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what do God's people have? God's people have disputes. Some are minor disputes. Other disputes are more difficult, and so thus, God's people require judges. It's central to the meaning of being an elder that you judge. I'm going to spend most of my time just making this point. But what I find is all of us are are completely resistant to judging. We think it's bad. We, We think really spiritual people don't need it. We think that we're not in a position to be judges, and I could go on and on. And so until you as a pastor and you as an elder are willing to just simply shut your mouth and say, okay, I'm a judge, we're not going to get anywhere. You know, I can talk all about various strategies for unity on a board of elders if you don't believe that you're supposed to be a judge. There was a very, very telling moment right at the end of me being in the PCA. I was at my presbytery meeting. There was a church up in Indy that was violating the book of church order. And so the presbytery had appointed a committee to look into it. And the committee had come back to presbytery and said, yeah, they're in violation of the book of church order. And so they told the the church, you change. You have to change what you do. It's in violation of the book of church order. And so they were like, yeah, 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 okay, 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 we'll give you a year to bring your practice into conformity with the book of church order, and I might add scripture, and I might add the confessions. (laughs) And so at the end of a year, I went to this meeting, I don't remember where it was, and, you know, by this time there were, I think this was before, yeah, this was before Central Indiana Presbytery, and so there were a bunch of people there, 
And I was sitting in the back, and the pastor of this church got up. He was a real sensitive kind of dude, hipster kind of, sensitive kind of, you know, mobiles hanging from the roof on either side of the pulpit, you know, these artsy-fartsy things, you know, that, and, a, and an art gallery attached at the side with, like, nudes and, you know, this kind of, you know what I'm talking about, this kind of church. This guy gets up, and he just starts talking about how much he and his church and elders and pastors honor the Presbyterian system, the connectionalism, all this stuff, and that they, they love being in a denomination where they can love and submit to their fellow elders. Right? You remember what Samuel Johnson said? Samuel Johnson said, the, the louder he talked of his honor, the, the quicker I counted my spoons. And I just had this sneaking suspicion that what was going on up front was maybe not the full story. Well, then I saw that his elders were passing around this document to the whole presbytery. This document was getting... So I quick ran over and got a copy of the document, read it real quick, and it just boggled my mind. He was standing up there saying, we love being in submission. We want to be peacemakers. We're so thankful to have men that will come alongside us and tell us what we should be doing and all this stuff, right? And the document is, we do not accept the judgment of the presbytery, and we intend to stand on our understanding of the word of God. It's like, oh, please, please. I mean, this had been like a, two years in the process. They've been given a year to bring their, their practice into conformity. And I thought, okay, people here don't like me. I know this. Well, there were people that we loved each other. And so what am I going to do? How am I going to get up and peel this onion or this jalapeno pepper, this habanero, whatever it was. How am I going to open this thing up? And I just didn't know what to do, right? And then I hit on it. I stood up and I said, Mr. Moderator, I might even have said point of order, you know, because it was like approaching the issue of truthfulness. The first words out of my mouth were, may I please remind us as a presbytery that the essence of our work is making judgments. Why? Well, because... That's the one thing you always forget in an elders meeting. You think your job is to screw around with the schedules and the money and interview new members. And even interviewing new members, you don't want to think of it as being making judgments. But if you go back and read the old reformed books of church order, they're very clear in the responsibility of elders to make judgments about the condition of the soul of those who are being accepted for membership. And you read it and you go, whoa, that's weird. And so listen, what is the purpose of a presbytery? Its whole purpose is to make judgments. That's what a presbytery exists for. So I said, may I remind presbytery that our calling, the nature of our office, the point of this meeting is that we make judgments. And I said, I have read the document and I have listened to Pastor so-and-so and I have made the judgment that whereas he's speaking of submission and peace, the document his elders are handing out is speaking of war and rebellion. Now, how do you think that went over? It was tense. But you guys, what on earth are we doing in a presbytery meeting? If that kind of thing can go on, and the presbytery is filled with elders and pastors, and nobody's going to call them on it. This is stupid. And so the PCA will brag about being connectional, mutually submitted. It'll talk about accountability. It will thumb its nose at us because you don't have accountability. And let me tell you, my experience in the PCA consistently is there is no accountability in the PCA. 
None. None. Why? Because everybody thinks it's wrong to make judgments. And even if hypothetically they thought it was right to make judgments, they would look at each other and they would say, well, but I mean me, I mean maybe you're in a position to make a judgment, but I'm certainly not. I mean, let him who is without sin among you make the first, cast the first stone. I mean, I'm like a piece of work. Maybe you're righteous and you can make a judgment, but I can't. And of course, we all know that when it comes to leadership in the home and marriage, we don't make judgments. And we don't lead because we think we're superior to our wives. And nobody ever thinks that God gave men the responsibility of leading in a marriage because they're superior. If we're going to start making excuses for why we don't want to judge, it really doesn't have anything to do with our sin. It has to do with us not wanting to bear the weight of an office. And that is the case in every place that a man is a man today. That was David's recurring theme. I wished he would stop at one point and explain what he meant when he talked about us as men going around with head coverings on. What it means is that we're denying the dignity of our sex. And so we're covering ourselves, and this is what men do today. And, and they don't even have the courage to wear the, the baseball cap forward. And it's just like, this is us, right? You going to cop to it? Everybody get a cop to it with me. I mean, some of you are maybe men, but most of us aren't. So the first thing I want to say is, if we will just all agree that the nature of a presbytery and the nature of a board of elders is judgment. It's judgment. That's what it is. You're there to make judgments. That's it. Now, at this point, some of you might think, well, okay, I mean, I get what he's saying, but that's only in cases where you have to make judgments. And so then my response is, okay, in what cases don't you have to make judgments? And then you're going to trot out some item that could be on an agenda of a board meeting, an elders meeting, and you're going to say, well, you don't need to make judgments there, and I'm going to pounce on you. I'm going to say, ha ha, gotcha, because it'll be a judgment. But what I'd rather do is just point to the text that we just read. And I want you to think about what we just read, and I want you to realize that the reason that Jethro said to Moses, you can't keep doing this, was that from morning until night, Moses was doing one thing, and that is he was adjudicating the conflict of the people of God. And that's what pastors and elders do constantly, is we simply are peacemakers. That's what we're for. The reason for all those elders out in the wilderness was that the people never stopped fighting. You can't deny it. The difficult cases, the really hard cases, the easy cases, the, the cases that could start at the lowest court of original jurisdiction and work their way up to the appellate court, and, and then the really difficult ones go to most, all of them are fights. And so you say, well, our church doesn't have fights that need to be judged. We don't have that kind of conflict. We had it before, but now we don't have it. And okay, so here's, here's my response to that. What do you think a counseling session is? What do you counsel about? Let's say a young woman comes in and says she's being molested by her father. What do you call that? What do you call it? I call it the oppression of an innocent victim. That requires a pastor who will be a peacemaker. In fact, it might be good if he carries a big peacemaker. <laughs> Think of pastoral counseling and you say, well, that's child abuse. I say, okay, what about a case where a husband comes in and says to you, you know, I don't know what to do with my wife's credit cards. It's peacemaking. What about a case where a wife says, my husband's using pornography, he's committing adultery. What are you doing? You're making peace. What about a case where a pastor preaches consistently year after year longer than he's supposed to in the church? And this is me. Well, at some point... There needs to be a big stick. 
Because why? Well, because the women are being oppressed in the nursery. Pastoral counseling, home visitations, you go into a home, you know what's going on in that home. If you have eyes to see, you know the fights that are going, you know how the children are treating each other, you know how the father is fighting through his children at his wife. You know how the wife is leading rebellion against the father through her children. Home visitations, peacemaking. What is preaching? Preaching, you know how John MacArthur says that when you preach, don't ever, you don't apply it. The Holy Spirit will apply it, right? You, you just give them the straight dope, just the word of God, right? What kind of understanding is this of a shepherd if he doesn't modify the feed of his dairy cows based on what their problems are and what their butterfat content is, who would have family devotions that didn't address the problems of the home? So preaching is peacemaking. Who are the reformers other than peacemakers who see the oppression of the poor people who are having to put money into the coffers so that they can spring the souls of their loved ones free from purgatory. Calvin and Luther were peacemakers. Jesus says that we all are called to be agents of what? Reconciliation. What is reconciliation? It's peacemaking, right? All of us are on board with the gospel being reconciliation. We realize that the gospel is peace between man and God. Christ is our peace. But what? It doesn't apply after you become a Christian? What is repentance? Repentance is coming to peace to God again. And so the need for officers in the church, and I would include as officers Titus II women. I think the reason, a lot of the reason we have women being put into offices that men should hold is that we don't have women functioning in an authority context over women in the church. And what do older women do? I had Mary Lee bring up something. I don't remember what it was. Where are you? I don't remember what it was in the last couple of days. And I'm like, dude, I didn't actually call her dude, but, but if she had been a man, I would have like, dude, for heaven's sakes, would you please handle that? Because it was a woman. Why should I have to go handle a woman when I have Mary Lee? We all have our wives. And what are they doing when they go to deal with these sins in the home? What are women doing when they go into a home where a woman absolutely refuses to keep a clean home? And she's got two feet of dirty clothes on her floor. She's a peacemaker. She goes in and she cleans it up. And then she says, now, you get your you-know-what to work. And you clean your clothes. There's no excuse for your children having to live in this kind of oppression. Isn't that peacemaking? And so the only way that you as an elder, and really deacons too, all the talk about deacons not having authority is a joke. If you have people in your church who are chronically short on money, almost certainly it's due to sin. It may be they're slothful. It may be that the church isn't helping them. Sometimes that's the problem. But in most cases, it's a combination of being spendthrifts and lazy. And how do the deacons handle this if they don't look at the books of the family? You're just going to give out money willy-nilly and not take responsibility for the financial habits of the people. Again, deacons are what? They're judges. They exercise authority in behalf of the church. And the people actually want them to do this. And so listen, officers are judges. An elder who is not not willing to be a judge is worthless. It's completely worthless. An elder unwilling to judge is like a king who refuses to rule. A cop who doesn't believe in speed limits. A wife who refuses to help and submit to her husband. A teacher who believes reading, writing, and arithmetic are the tools of Western cultural elitism. 
a doctor who refuses to look at bodies or blood, a fireman who thinks fires are awesome and loves to watch them burn, a soccer player who has a principle of never touching the ball with his feet, a car mechanic who's committed to wearing clean white shirts and quits working to change his shirt every time he gets a spot on it, a dairy farmer who believes milking cows is human oppression of animals, a pig farmer who can't stand the smell of manure, an op-ed writer at the New York Times who votes for Donald Trump, <laughs> an elder who is unwilling to judge, an elder who refuses to judge others is worthless. Judging is the central duty of an elder. Listen to the language of the liturgy written for the ordination and installation of elders by 19th century Princeton principal and theologian A.A. A. Hodge. Alexander Archibald, he's the eldest son of Charles Hodge. He has a manual of forms that somehow I, I got a copy of, and we use it every time we ordain elders and deacons. And listen to what it says. You have the words of institution for the Lord's Supper, you have the words of institution for baptism. So you always read the biblical precedent, right? So this is in the middle of him giving the biblical precedent for ordaining and installing elders in every town, every church. And he says, in the first planning of the Christian church, the apostles went about ordaining several elders in every city. A distinction is affirmed by Paul between those elders who as ministers of the gospel labor in word and doctrine and those elders who only rule. Now, it doesn't mean that the elders who are ruling don't teach or preach sometimes, and it doesn't mean that the pastor doesn't rule. But there's a basic distinction, and he says this is a biblical distinction. And then he says these ruling elders are in a special sense the representatives of the people chosen by them for the purpose of exercising government and discipline in cooperation with pastors or ministers of the word. It is proper that the government of the church should be in the hands of several men of wisdom and piety rather than in the hands of one, and especially that the pastor should be counseled and assisted by persons of reputation living what? Living permanently in the midst of the people. Okay, pastors flip, jump, good ship comes. The guy I went to seminary with, he was out in Durango and was a liberal pastor, he was conservative, and he called me one day, he said, you know, an older pastor came up to me in Presbytery and he said his principle in his ministry was, if a good ship comes, jump. I've always remembered that. Well, pastors come and go, don't they? And people in churches know this. They've seen them come and go. He says, that the pastor should be counseled and assisted by persons of reputation living permanently in the midst of the people in perfect sympathy with them and enjoying their confidence. And then this, thus, in the Presbyterian churches have the people secured control of their own church affairs and prevented the growth of bigotry and tyranny on the part of their ministers. Listen, I love it. We read it every single time in this church when we have the ordination and installation of pastors and elders. What a beautiful statement of the, the sort of symbiotic relationship of pastors and elders. It's clear in Presbyterian systems, if the elders aren't happy, ain't nobody happy. But really, the way it works in most churches is if the elders' wives aren't happy, ain't nobody happy. But look, you've got the pastor living, having to live in harmony but then when it comes to the elders' board and the duty of discipline, elders refuse to judge. An elder who is unwilling to judge others is forsaking the most basic duty of his office. He is worthless. But there's someone even worse than an elder who refuses to judge. Any ideas who that is? There's somebody that's even worse on an elders' board. 
It's the elder who both refuses to make judgments himself, but also opposes any other elder making judgments. And I would actually say that in most cases, the two are synonymous. If you refuse to allow judgments to be made, if you refuse to make them, you you will refuse to allow them. And the reason is because you have a bad conscience. And so you just become a judge of the other elders. This is always the way it works. If you refuse to bear responsibility, you then turn around and condemn anybody else who's willing to bear responsibility. Does this make sense? Proverbs 18, verse 9. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him destroys. And so what it's telling us is actually laziness is destructive. And so if you have an elder who doesn't want to bear responsibility and therefore denies that he is a judge and refuses to judge, that man destroys the elder's board. It doesn't take really more than one of them. There are many scriptural texts men will abuse in their attempts to abdicate their own authority for making judgments and also to oppose anyone else on the elder's board who sets out to accomplish this work. Some of the texts are, first... Let him who is without sin among us cast the first stone. Second, love always expects the best. Third, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But far and away, the most popular and most common one is judge not lest you be judged. And I don't have time to go into this, but I think if you have a will to be a judge as an elder, and you just think about it for a couple of minutes, you'll realize why that really doesn't apply to almost anything on a board of elders. I have never been on a moralistic board of elders. I've known a lot of moralism in myself and other people, but I have not seen a board of elders that is quick and hasty in making judgments, except against the pastor. And I have talked to many pastors who suffer under that all the time. Now, by this time in our two days of preaching on God and conflict, we all realize that our calling as pastors, elders, and pastors and elders' wives is to fight the good fight. I mean, that point has been made, and wonderfully by by both Toby and David. So now let me say again that the center of the fight for ruling elders is making judgments because the center of the work of ruling elders is adjudicating conflicts and thus defending and restoring and keeping what? Peace, unity, and purity of the church. The only way to protect and restore the peace, unity, and purity of the church is by fighting. There is no peace that comes without conflict. It doesn't happen. I'm not prepared to write this down, but I'll tell you that I've been saying it a lot. I believe that authority and conflict are similar in that authority has a certain critical mass, And it can move here, it can move there, but you can never diminish it. I believe the same is true of conflict in churches. I think every church has exactly the same amount of conflict. And the only question is whether the pastors and elders are deciding where it's going to happen. And if the pastors and elders aren't deciding where it's going to (laughs) happen, good luck with that. Knock yourselves out. It's the job of pastors and elders to decide where to have the conflict. And if they decide where to have it, they decide in such a way as to restore the peace, unity, and purity of the church. If they're not being proactive with conflict, they will be reactive. And so would you just get over this thing about conflict? Don't lie to me and tell me you don't have it in your church. I know you do. And so the question I have for you is, have you decided where you'll have it and when? Or are you a simpleton who allows other people to set the terms of the conflict? You know, Joe is a captain in the Navy, and he'll tell you, you don't ever want your enemy determining where you're going to fight and with what weapons. Right, Joe? Yeah, he always says yes to me, right, Joe? Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
So now let me say again, the center of the fight for ruling elders is making judgments because the center of the work of ruling elders is adjudicating conflicts and thus defending and restoring and keeping the peace, unity, and purity of the church. Why do we want to assure the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Well, John 17, beginning with verse 14, Jesus... In his high priestly prayer, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Now, isn't that a perfect description of living in America today? I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. That's just all it is. It's not because you didn't get it quite right. God's given you his word, and so the world hates you. Resign yourself to that. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we identify with Jesus, and we're not of the world. Okay? We're no longer worldlings. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. And at that point, you all sort of think... (laughs) Why not, Jesus? (laughs) Especially as you get older. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And it's like, no, please take me out of this world. I don't want to be kept from the evil one, because then I'm going to have to resist the devil so he flees. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we see the conflict. We belong to him. He's given us his word. So the world hates us as it hated him first. No servant is greater than his master. He's given us his word. He's sanctifying, which means making us peculiar. That's the meaning of sanctification. You're odd. He's made us odd with his word. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, and that's us today. We're devoted to the teaching of the apostles, and so we're the ones he's praying for here, that they may all be what? One. One. That they may be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So it's a very serious thing to have the peace, unity, and purity of the church. Very serious thing. Another way to say it that's more positive is that if a church has unity, it's kind of like what it says in Psalms about a father who has lots of children. They will not be ashamed when they contend with their enemies in the gate. And honestly, on some level, how can they gainsay that? I mean, honestly, if a church loves each other, fights fair, and has basic unity, the home has it, The siblings have it. The church has it. What an unbelievable testimony to Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because that's not how we normally are. I hate to tell you, but you aren't actually peaceable. Listen, when we live in unity as the church, when we dwell together in unity, when brothers dwell together in unity, it is an absolutely uncontestable witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's completely contrary to our nature. It just is. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Do you get the feeling that he's being repetitious? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. This is why we engage in conflict in the church. This is why. Because it's a testimony. Because conflict is what protects the the purity, unity, the peace, unity, and purity of the church, and because that is what proclaims the gospel. 
that is what silences the attacks of the wicked against us. But this work of restoring and keeping the peace, unity, and purity of the church is exceedingly difficult. It's difficult because there's no end to conflict in the church. Note the time and energy Moses judged from morning to even, so that Jethro's observation was, you will surely wear out both yourself and other people. Here's what John Calvin says about Jethro's advice to Moses, and pastors especially listen to this. He says, therefore, let all, whether kings or magistrates or pastors of the church, know that whilst they strain every nerve to fulfill their duties, something will always remain which may admit of correction and improvement. So what he's saying is, would you all please notice that Moses needed to be corrected and improved? Moses! Here, too, it's worthwhile to remark that no single mortal can be sufficient to do everything. However many and various may be the endowments wherein he excels. And you think of Scripture and what it says about Moses. For who shall equal Moses, whom we have still seen to be unequal to the burden when he undertook the whole care of governing the people? Let then God's servants learn. Okay, now this is you. This is what Calvin wants you to learn. Let then God's servants learn to measure carefully their powers lest they should wear out by ambitiously embracing too many occupations. For this propensity to engage in too many things is a very common malady. <laughs> and numbers are so carried away by it as not to be easily restrained. In other words, this is very common among pastors, and it must stop. If you read Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor, you know, one of the points he makes there is that Pastors should limit the amount of money they get paid so they have money left over to hire helpers who will help them be more faithful in the care of souls. Note the numbers, and this is the thing that really came home to me recently. The numbers are for every 10,000, 1,000, 1,000, 100, 100, 10, and 10, 1. So I thought, okay, so how big is the metro area of Indy? Well, around a million, a little less. So that means how many elders in the city of Indy? Let's assume they were talking about individuals and not families here. So how many elders would you have to have in the city of Indianapolis? Elders, 100,000. So then you say, well, probably most of the families average seven, eight, nine. Okay, it's still 10,000. But I don't think that that's the way you should look at those figures. I, I'm not going to you know, take a, a strong stand on that. But aren't we all blown away by the sheer numbers that they decided they were going to have? One for every 10. Why would they have one for every 10 if there was no need? What is the need? What's the need? To judge and to teach. That's what it says. Make the judgments and then teach. What are you to teach? You're to teach God's word. Why do you teach God's word? It's very clear it's the direct result of the fighting of the people. It is clear from the text that the reason you teach is because you look at the sins of the people that are causing divisions, and you then teach in a way that heals the divisions of the people. In other words, preaching and teaching is church discipline, and it's personal, and it's applied. It's as specific as the prescriptions our physicians give us. That's what it should be. There should never be a sermon. There shouldn't even be five minutes in any sermon that you're not thinking as you preach and teach of the people in front of you and what they need to hear here. 
But Alex is one of our pastors, our college pastor, and he's been having this wonderful series on Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. And I wasn't able to get in the first few, but I got into the last two. I listened to him. And I noticed something I'd never noticed with Alex before, which is Alex was improving the text. Alex is always perfect at everything he does. You know, he's got to play the sax the other day. You know, he's just perfect. Everything about Alex is perfect. He's our, our editor for our books that does the final editing. Yet perfect. But I noticed that Alex was taking risks in his teaching. And then I noticed that Alex's risks were directly to us and our situation. It was very clear that Alex knew what he wanted us to feed from. Why? Well, because he knows our weaknesses. He knows our sins. He knows our fights. And so everything he did was just wonderful. And so one for every 10. And then note the nature of the work. And I'll just read the words as they appear in the text. Judge, judge, dispute, judge, dispute, judge, major dispute, minor dispute, judge, peace, judge, difficult dispute, minor dispute, judge. If we accept our ordination to the office of elder, let no man be under any illusion concerning the nature of the work to which he's being called. It's all about disputes and quarrels and lawsuits and fighting. The job of the elder is to insert himself into people's fights and quarrels and sinful destruction of relationships, marriages, and homes, and to bring peace by making judgments. This is pastoral care. This is pastoral counseling, and this is preaching and teaching. In other words, preaching and teaching even are conflict resolution and judgment. But what if you have an elder or two or three who refuse to fulfill their offices, who refuse to restore the peace, unity, and purity of the church, who hinder and obstruct the pastor and elders, who are willing to enter the fray, and they restrict them from doing so out of a guilty conscience or a fear of litigation or a fear of loss of giving units or a fear of loss of popularity. And I'd weigh those about equal. Fear of loss of popularity, a fear of loss of money. I'd say they're about equally prominent. The pastor is the moderator of the elders board, the session. It's his duty to discipline these elders. How does a pastor discipline elders? It's hard. So from here on out, I think what I'm going to do is just give a few thoughts. We don't have much time left. The first thing I would say is that remember that children quickly grow up into adults. It happens very quickly. And the minute you know the trajectory of a young man in your church, it is your obligation to be forming him into an elder. Because when they're young, they're putty in your hand. And guess what? If you don't discipline them when they're young, you're going to have a hard time starting when they've become a physician. And so I think back at Adam and Brian. Brian's an attorney. Adam's a physician. And I remember them and Andy Halsey, I remember them coming over to our house and me just thinking, these dudes are going to be leading PCA churches someday. I just knew it. You you can tell this in young people. You know what's going to happen. And so what I said to Adam is, I said, you know, Adam, in a few years, you're going to be a physician. And when you become a doctor, it is going to be your temptation to look down on pastors because you'll be rich, you'll be well-educated, you will work harder than most pastors do, And so you look at a pastor as being sort of a a slothful kind of guy that couldn't make it doing anything honest for a living. And listen, this is my judgment about what is the norm on the part of Presbyterian elders. That, to me, is the normal attitude of Presbyterian elders towards their pastors. And I'm not going to tell you that we as pastors don't deserve that, but it's wrong. 
If your wife only submits to you when you're respectable, how often would that be? And it is your job as elders to submit to your pastors. It is your job. Maybe most especially when you know their nakedness. Be a man. Cover it. Don't oppress him. Don't use your superior intellect and financial position to oppress him. Don't do it. Love him. You know, you want to point out all his sins and failures? He knows them. Most times, he knows them. And because he knows them, he won't fight you, and that's pathetic. Because the health of the church and peace depends on him fighting you. And I can't tell you how many times I have talked to pastors and seen this this played out with pastors, where you've got high-powered accountants, management, you've got attorneys, you've got engineers, you've got doctors, you have all these people, and they're on the elders board, farmers, dairy farmers, and they look at you as a guy that doesn't know a hay mow if it smacked you in the face and you wouldn't know how to get anything up into it anyhow. You're, you're worthless. You're a chaplain. You know, you're to show up at the weddings and the funerals and, and give a few helpful thoughts for the week. And listen, it's your job as an elder to teach your pastor that's not what he is. You may have to teach him and then to defend him. You form your pastor into the shepherd he needs to be for you. I tell women this all the time. It's your job to teach your husband to be a man. Since when do men not have to be taught by their wives how to be a husband? And you as elders need to teach your pastor how to be a moderator, and how to discipline you. And then you have to protect him. Now, let me say a few words about protection. I was 30 years old. I went into a yoke parish in Wisconsin, and one of my elders resigned because she became convinced she shouldn't be a woman elder. And I pleaded with her not to resign because I knew if she resigned, my denomination required women elders, and I knew that the person I got would be worse. Sure enough, The first elders meeting, I picked up this woman in her late 70s to take her to the meeting and dropped her off afterwards. And we got back as we sat in the driveway. Timothy, I have something to say to you before I get out of the car. I said, yes, what is it? She said, is it clear to me that you and I have different understandings of Scripture? You believe it's God's word. I believe it's man's word. And then she got out of the car. Well, within a couple of meetings, She came to this meeting, and she had a legal pad, and it was filled with red ink, literally red ink. And it was only a church of like 90 people. How she filled up so much red ink of so many pages with a church of 90 people, I have no idea. But I mean, it it was bad, bad, and things were going bad, bad, and everything was no winners. It was just doom and gloom. And she spent like 45 minutes going through all her red numbers of what was going on in the church and what we could expect. And then she gets to the end and she says, this is because of your preaching. And she said, if you keep preaching this way, this church is going to go bankrupt. (laughs) You know, and I'm 30 years old. And I'm wondering what the other elders are thinking about this. I'm on the hot seat. And I didn't know what to say. I knew that the financial condition of the church wasn't anything like. I mean, people lie and manipulate through numbers. They'll always tell you the church is about to go bankrupt if they don't like you, okay? But I knew I couldn't argue that because she had five pages of red ink. And so I just sat there, and I was hung out to dry. Sitting to my right was Chuck, best skeet shooter, best fisherman. He was amazing. Everybody knew it. And so he's sitting on my right, and And Chuck, this is the guy that every potluck, every time the church gathered, this hawking Dutchman would take the littlest baby, the newest baby in the church, and would hold him the whole time through the potluck. The mother's 
went to heaven. And they never cried in Chuck's arms, never. And so Chuck's sitting to my right, and I have no idea what's going to happen. I just know I can't say anything. And there's this long silence. And then Chuck clears his throat, and he was a man of few words. So he's sitting there, and all of a sudden he opens his Bible. He says, I'd like to read a scripture. And he starts reading. And he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And I didn't remember what came next. (laughs) You know, I just knew I was feeling good. And here's what comes next. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You remember, Toby, I think it was, was talking about how David loved Jonathan and we can't give that over to the gays. I cannot tell you how much I love Chuck at that moment. I can't tell you. Because it was heaven and hell. It was my career. It was this new woman elder. It was the church. It was our souls that were at stake. I knew it. And he read that. And of course, you know what happened. That church ended up, in the coming years, all the women repented of being elders. They've been elders for decades. Presbytery came to us and said, you're being bad. You don't have any women elders. And the women met with them. And the women said, we don't want to be elders. Finally, our our husbands have agreed that there will be elders. I mean, that's exactly what happened. And the Presbytery is like, you know, what are they going to say to this? And then the man who was respected above everybody began to visit people and began to say, you come to church, we're putting on an active list. And there was a meeting where they were put on the inactive list, and then all hell broke loose. And then young men started coming to that church because they heard there was a fire and they wanted to see it burn. And then the state announced that they were going to take away the right-of-way on Highway 33 across the middle of Wisconsin. They're going to take away the right-of-way, and we were landlocked with a graveyard on the other three sides of the church, so we had to abandon the property. And that elder said, listen, I am not giving any money that's going to go into the PCUSA for the building of a new church. And so guess what? Within two years, we voted to leave the PCUSA. We went into the PCA, and you go up to Partyville now, and there's a beautiful church that's healthy of around 200 people in a town of, what, 1,800? And I mean a huge Lutheran church, Wisconsin Synod, a huge Roman Catholic church, a huge Methodist church, and a thriving PCA church. But it's not PCA. Listen, love your pastor and defend him. He's a sinner. You know what Calvin says about your pastor? He says, yes, he is your inferior, and yes, God does command that you listen to him. That's what Calvin says. And then Calvin says, so why would God make you submit to an inferior pastor. And he says, because it builds unity in the church that everybody has to lower themselves to eating from his hand. (laughs) It's just like, how could anything be better than that? (laughs) I mean, you gotta love Calvin. 